This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I want to take a moment to say I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness, where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Claire Massoud, author of Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. In the way that, you know, those who, who want to mobilize the vote need to act on it right now, I feel like those who believe that art is important, we need to mobilize now, too. We'll be back with Claire Massoud in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. The conversation you're about to listen to with Claire Massoud focused a lot on the power of art and how we need it now more than ever. During the discussion, she said, as played earlier, In the way that, you know, those who who want to mobilize the vote need to act on it right now, I feel like those who believe that art is important, we need to mobilize now, too. It's true. The time for art is now. And I'm here to tell you that I emphatically believe this. And if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps the show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's such an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear and to keep art out of the dark caves something we also talk about in this episode. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. You can learn more and donate at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Your support helps keep conversations like the one you are about to hear alive and on the airwaves. It's important for me to produce interviews like these with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, more organization than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you're about to listen to is free but it's not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will continue these conversations. Stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. 
My guest today is Claire Massoud, author of six works of fiction, including New York Times bestsellers, The Emperor's Children and The Burning Girl. She is a literary scholar and teacher and writes criticism and nonfiction in addition to novels. Her latest book is a collection of essays called Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. It's a mixture of narrative personal essays and literary criticism. She lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and currently has three dogs. We began the discussion with this question. What makes you, maybe when you wake up one day, feel like you, you need a certain genre? And may, maybe it's not that simple. I don't know. Well, I, you know, it's interesting. I think um, I really do see it as something like a religious calling, right? I mean, it's my calling to be a, a literary, what would I say, a scholar, student, and practitioner of the language arts, right? Whatever you want to call it. It's p- part of what the book is about, you know, or the construction of the book, not the actual essays themselves, which are written in different circumstances. But the reason there are both personal essays and literary essays is that is that for me, both my experiences and my literary experiences um, are, are crucial to the making of who I am, right? It, it isn't that uh, reading Madame Bovary is less important than what school I went to or who my you know, childhood best friend was. I mean, th- those things are, are, are all important. And I, I feel that I have lived, well, many lives in a way, but, but certainly I, I have lived an exterior life and an interior life. Uh, as we all do, and that that interior life is is powerfully shaped by literary experience, and and that those characters uh, who have been meaningful to me, they walk they walk with me all the way through life. I want to talk a little bit about your introduction, and this question might relate to it. It might not have been in there specifically, but you know, you wrote the introduction to this as COVID was raging, and it's still going on now. You know, a lot of writers I talk to say that writing during COVID brought them solace. And I was taking a walk with a friend yesterday and we were talking about, we both have worked as freelance writers and we were talking about how it's harder and harder these days to make money doing that. And one of the things she said to me is that, you know, people don't even really recognize good writing anymore. Meaning like if you could go in and edit people like maybe magazines or or other sources don't really even care anymore, maybe because we're in this text world where nothing is grammatically correct. But I'm curious about your your perspective on that idea that people might not even recognize good writing anymore and where we're moving as a world. I I would to a large degree agree with your friend. I think, um, you know, it, it it's a it the sort of bleak, uh, the bleak and generalized construct is, you know, we're, we're headed towards a new dark ages. Um, (laughs) I hope that's not, uh, true, but, but even in the dark ages, there were monks in monasteries preserving manuscripts. Uh, but, but, but certainly there's, there's some sense, you know, I, I went, I mean, it's a conversation funny enough. I was having with a friend just the other day, um, who's a visual artist, but we were, we were taking a walk and, and um, we went together uh, a year and a half ago to Thessaloniki in Greece, and and um, and we visited the the ruins uh, outside the city of of 
the tomb of Philip of Macedon and, uh, and, and the town that was the birthplace of Alexander the Great. And you could see, and, and you know, the, the museums and so on, um, with all these extraordinary artifacts. And you could see that there was this extraordinary flourishing culture with amazing art. And that at some point, people abandoned the villas with the beautiful mosaics and sort of moved into the equivalent of mud huts down the road. And, and, and the silt and sand covered over the mosaics. And, and, and people went, you know, people abandoned their knowledge and their sophistication and returned to a primitive way of being, right? Like, it, it's not that it can't happen. It does happen. And and I feel that as we relinquish all the wealth and stores of knowledge, uh, the sophistication of language, the, the, the wealth of vocabulary available to us in English, which is the largest and most elastic of, of languages, you know, I, I, as, as I say to my students, Hassin, who was a contemporary of Shakespeare, Hassin used a vocabulary of 6,000 words. Shakespeare's vocabulary, 24,000 words, right? We are at play in the fields of the Lord. We have, we have this incredible wealth of, 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 of nuance and, and connotation and, uh, and uh, musicality available to us in, in the choice of words that we use. And yet, and yet, as a culture, even 15 years ago, everything was written to a seventh grade reading level. And at this point, it's, it's now, you know, a third grade reading level. And I think we were talking um, the other day about Christopher Hitchens, who was a friend of ours, and, and the way he used language and his love of words and the fact that he could construct off the cuff the magnificent, hilarious, wry, compound, complex sentences that he would, he'd been captain of his debate team in high school, you know, it's a particular training, and he could, he could speak off the cuff for 10 minutes, utterly lucidly, with great complexity, never losing his the train of thought, you know, finishing a sentence he'd begun 10 minutes earlier, really remarkable. And, and the, the, you know, and then you look at, you, then you look at the person leading our nation now, and who can't who who has a, a vocabulary of about twenty words, and uh, and and can't really finish a single sentence, and strangely, you know, half the people love it. The thing you just said that that gives me hope is that you know you were talking about the monks in the caves preserving this, and that we've gone through these dark times, and that something will prevail. Maybe the things that we we cherish, the, the writing, and it, it's not just the words themselves, but the meaning behind them and what they're trying to convey. And, you know, in your introduction, you touched on this, you were talking about sort of the overwhelmingness of, of today and, and not even necessarily just COVID, but technology and, and how COVID is, is contributing to maybe a faster loss of our future. And um, there was a theme that was in there that I felt like encapsulated the book for me about palimpsest, which is talking about memory and nostalgia and seeing things from the past over things or seeing things in the present kind of existing at the same time over things from the past. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this concept. I think that one of the, for me, um, you know, you were saying earlier that, that writers have thought that you've spoken to have thought that writing has been a consolation and I certainly have felt that. I've also felt that reading is a consolation. And and the and the epigraph that I chose for this book is a is a quote from a, a poem called October by Louise Gluck. And it, it's very simple. It says, You are not alone, the poem said in the dark tunnel. And and and, and I think that 
really is something I feel so powerfully is that we we have um, the part of the palimpsest is is all of the life and experience that has gone before, and that if instead of imagining that we are alone on a darkling plane and that nobody has ever experienced anything like this, you know, um, in in the history of humankind, if in fact we look back and we and and we read. Um, and we listen, we, we we discover that people, as you say about, you know, about the monks, that people have surmounted really incredible challenges. You know, you can you can read Camus' The Plague, which is which is a fiction. I I was part, um, I was one of the many thousands, I think, who's, who who followed along uh, with Yi Yun Lee's online uh, book group reading of War and Peace in the spring. And so I reread War and Peace. And, and when Napoleon invades Moscow, uh, you know there are these scenes that 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 seemed it was you know it was April or so when I was reading it it seemed so apropos which is about all the 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 wealthiest people in Moscow sort of selling their their uh, gilded mirrors and fancy furniture on the street corner to get a in order to get a, a ride out of town on a farmer's cart you know suddenly their their amazing objects and wealth were worth nothing because because death was approaching and. And you know that was at the time when m many people were leaving New York City in haste to to find refuge wherever they could. It was a very, um, it wasn't the same situation, right? The siege was not uh, military in 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 New York in the spring, but there was a siege, and and people survived, and people now, um, you know, have returned or are returning, and and it's a different city, and it's it's. Um, in the same way, and it's a renewed city in a way, even though they're still battling, we're all still battling with this pandemic. But, 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 but the analogies with with this, you know, with the situation in the novel are, are not negligible. And 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 look, you know, Moscow still exists. It was interesting the way that you talked about this idea of the palimpsest, <laughs> like a tongue twister. <laughs> yeah, I first heard of the word actually. Um, on the show, when I was asking people their favorite word, Jamie Quattro, that uh -huh. was her, that was her favorite word. And I, I hadn't heard it before. And so I, I it was so powerful in your book for me. Like I, when I was taking a walk after I was taking a walk that I take every day and I was thinking about every walk that I've taken on that walk and who I was in those moments and how you can see everything at once and I guess in some way it gives me some hope. Totally. By no means, I can't call myself a Buddhist. I'm not a Buddhist and I don't know enough about it. There are so many, uh, what would you call them, elements of that wisdom tradition that make sense to me. And, uh, you know, in a way, it's it's about a sort of mindfulness of, of being present. And if you're present on that walk, and you allow the presence of the other walks to be with you, right? So, so it's it, that's not about living in the past. It's just about living fully in in that place that, that you know along that path that has all of these echoes and resonances, of, as you say, of all the thoughts you had or the conversations that you had while while walking this this path, and and the and the conversations and the pe person that you were and the and the person that you're becoming. One of the things that I, I I sort of say like a grumpy old grandma in the book, but 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 we are living in an age of distraction, and 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 these stupid phones that 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 very canny people have 
have created in so manipulative a way. Uh, I don't know if you've watched The Social Dilemma, this new Netflix show, but 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 it's it's basically all the Silicon Valley uh, people being interviewed and saying, yes, this you know it was very deliberate to make this addictive and as addictive as possible in a capitalist model for profit, right? It's it's so so that your 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 the smartphone in your pocket is is created to be like crack cocaine, you know, and and um, and and all that is all that phone is is a distraction from life. It doesn't matter how many steps you take in a day. It doesn't matter, you know, how many likes you have on an Instagram. It doesn't matter what other people are posting. Like, put that stupid, as we're saying to our kids the whole time, put that stupid thing away and look at, around you, you know. Um, as my, my husband says to our kids, look at the text that is life, you know. <laughs> it's it's <clears throat> So I think that that's really the, the in a way I feel that um, of all the battles that we have, <clears throat> that is the biggest battle that we have, is against the distraction from uh, from from reality. And you know, I, I come back and back to this: we are animals. We we are we need to we live embodied lives. We live in our bodies. All our senses are engaged. When you go on a walk, the air smells of something. There's a taste in your mouth. You you can you touch things the the breeze you know ruffles the hairs on the back of your arm or whatever and you're fully engaged as an animal the way your dog is engaged when you take the dog for a walk when you sit at a screen with the windows closed and headphones on you know you're you're passive and only one part of you is engaged which is your eyes my eyes i don't know about yours are being ruined by this <laughs> by this constant screen time and 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 it's just it's a it's a terrible diminution, you know. We I feel that the 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 aficionados of of computer life want to try to convince us that it's better than real life, and 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 it's the death of sort of two thirds or three quarters of our animal selves. It's just awful. Well, one of the things you write about that I think you were also talking about, you you sort of got this idea from books itself and and from writing was that. You wrote, um, you know, write for a seizing of power, a small magic. And so just based on some of the things you've just been saying, it seems like writing, whether you're writing about your own life or writing criticism, that it is some way to find agency almost more and more in, in this changing world where everything is unstable, that, that this is, could be where all of our power lies. Totally. And, and, you know, language is power. Okay. We live in a culture that misguidedly, well, not misguidedly because it's not totally untrue, but that believes that money is power. Right. But maybe money is power, but money isn't freedom. Language. If you have the, there's a wonderful uh, book by a French woman named Marie Cardinal called The Words to Say It. And, and it's about her psychoanalysis and about, uh, about basically finding the words to tell the story of her childhood trauma is liberates her from from many years of actual physical ill health and and um you know that's that's a particular example but but uh, i have a, a a friend and former student who who wrote a really wonderful book that i that i feel everybody in america should read her name is michelle quo and the book is called reading with patrick and it's about a year that she spent tutoring an inmate um, in a prison uh, in the South. And she, she um, 
had done Teach for America, and she went and taught in a small town in a in a middle school. I guess it was a maybe it was a charter school, but I, it was a school already that was for kids who had had been kicked out of other uh, schools. And and then she went off to law school, and while she was at law school, one of the student one of her former students uh, killed a man in a knife fight and went to to prison. And um, to, you know, there's there are a lot of sort of events in that, but, but between then and, and her tutoring, but she ended up then moving back to the town and spending a year tutoring him in reading and writing, because when she went back to see him, she discovered that he probably hadn't held a pen since he was in her classroom, and that he could he was illiterate. And in the course of the year, they started with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and they ended up with Walt Whitman, and they read all sorts of things, including Frederick Douglass along the way. And 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 she includes samples of his writing from, she would give him prompts and he would write something. He had a, when he was incarcerated, he had a small daughter, a babe, an infant daughter, but she had him write letters to his daughter. And, and the difference in nine months between, you know, it's a thing, I give I give these texts to my students, sort of one broken sentence that you can barely make out what he's trying to say to this extraordinary imaginary adventure that he takes his daughter canoeing down the Mississippi River um, when he'd never seen the Mississippi River. Um, the, the, and his it, language gave him the freedom of his imagination and the ability to communicate that free imagination. Right. If you have the words to say it, you 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 have the keys to the kingdom. And that um, that is something that we, you know, as 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 a nation, we have we have betrayed the trust, uh, you know, of, of education. We have not given our young people that we we have not encouraged uh, that understanding. We have encouraged people to believe that they need to, you know, study something utilitarian and practical and make a lot of money when, in fact, you know, many of us will do jobs that are probably a little bit boring and sometimes repetitive and sometimes difficult. And and yet, you know, it used to be understood that you could find your joy and fulfill yourself not in 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 the arena of your money making capitalist, you know, uh, daily run, you know, that, that actually you could, you could drive a truck on the highway and maybe, you know, that was more or less fulfilling, you know, depending on, uh, on the moment, but that you could go home and, and read Shakespeare, you know, and, and your life could be rich and full in that regard. And you could, you could experience things that, in you know, that, 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 that were extraordinary and remarkable. Now you go home and you watch porn on the internet. And is that better? I'd be like, no, that's not better. And that's why you say at the at the end of the beginning, you know, the time for art is now. I feel it's never been it's never been more pressing and necessary. And and I think, you know, which is presumably what the monks felt as they sort of hoarded their manuscripts into their into the, you know, behind the wall in their in their monastery or their cave or wherever. You know, they were like, well, we've got to hang on to it now. I mean, I, I, I you know, I, I understand that not everybody may agree, but I um that 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 the the power of the distractions in our in our uh in our current society, the power is very great. And um, you know, I think it may be that only a few uh, are convinced that the time for it is now. But 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 those of us who believe it, you know, in in the way that you know those who who want to mobilize the vote 
need to act on it right now. I feel like those who 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 believe that the, that art is important, we need to mobilize now too. Wow, that story! I had tears streaming down my face when you were telling me that story about Michelle um, reading with Patrick. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and just how much, just having, you know, having also read a lot as, as a kid and, and thinking about how that, how stories shaped me and how you learn about empathy and compassion and to root for the underdog and to understand how people got in circumstances like that out of no fault of their own and yeah, how much that that reading can save people and and connecting with people on that level is just so important. It can rise people up. Totally. And 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 I think if there's a hope for our divided nation, you know, surely it's there. In 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 and and it's one of the things that I find so um, unsettling about about you know I teach so I, I I do have some sense however imperfect of of of, of how, how young people are thinking right now, and I had a student in one of my classes the other day, wonderful uh, young person say, um, well of course you know fiction is for teaching a lesson or giving a message, and I and I and I she, and, and she was that was in the middle of a, of something she was saying and I said I'm sorry I have to interrupt you and I I just want to say that is not my understanding of what fiction is. I said, fiction is what it is about what it's like to be alive on the planet. It, you know, I said, fiction, as I was brought up to understand it, is without judgment, right? Fiction is, is, is just giving you the news. It's saying this, you know, think of Chekhov and the compassion of Chekhov or Tolstoy, or, you know, it, it's about saying, it's not about saying this is how you should think. And these people are bad and these people are good. It's saying, as, it, as the as the quote from Chekhov, it's not my job to tell you that horse thieves are bad people. It's my job to tell you what this horse thief is like, and then you get to make up your mind, right? And that's and and it isn't my it, it isn't the job of literature, actually, to 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 have representations of every single consciousness on the planet. It's actually to to ask a reader to make the imaginative leap to step inside a consciousness that is not like their own. You know, Chinua Achebe loved Shakespeare. I, I don't think the lives of Shakespeare's characters bore much resemblance to Chinua Achebe's own childhood. And yet he could recognize all of the emotions and the experiences and the dynamics uh, of the world around him in a Shakespeare play. You know, I, I think this is, you know, this is a moment um, in, in which there, there are a lot of people, I feel like there are a lot of people trying to set down a lot of rules and saying, you know, you shouldn't write about this and you shouldn't be interested in reading about that and you shouldn't and you shouldn't and you shouldn't. I feel like the point of art is to be free. And then there's the question, can somebody do something well? Can somebody, you know, spin the magic? And if they can't, they can't. And that's a failure. But to, but to sort of say that one shouldn't or to say that, you know, for a book to be interesting to me, the protagonist has to be like me. I feel absolutely not. My, as you're saying, my experience of reading is that that the, that when I am when I slip into the skin of characters when I'm reading and I slip into the skin of characters who are so unlike me, that's that's what's extraordinary. That's when I, you know, when you live a life that is so far from your own, and and then you understand something about the world that you didn't before. That's such a gift. Yeah, and I think also 
When you read about those people who are so unlike you or in situations so unlike you, you realize how alike we are that, you know, you might be a a horse thief or you might be someone that is being bred for your, your organs, but that fear is fear and, and we, we can learn how to be a better, more compassionate human by, by going into these people that we think are so different and finding that they're not. And, right. and you write about Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go in one of the earlier essays. And one of the things you're, you're talking about, because it, it seems at first to be kind of like this alternate science fiction world, but it's really about you know, the art and poetry of our tiny individual lives. And and you were talking about this book too, in terms of maybe people feeling like when they are writers and they sit down to write, they have to write these really big stories, but that story encompasses everything, even our domesticity and our fear and, and how we find beauty in really simple moments. Yes. Yes. And I think it was Flaubert, I think, who said, I want to write a novel in which nothing happens. People read for different reasons, right? Got to say that off the bat. And, and, and I know about myself that I, you know, I watch a film often for, for reasons of entertainment or escapism. And, and people read a lot for that. And so in those instances, you may be looking for glamour or drama or melodrama even. But, but I think for me as a reader, I'm, I'm looking for as we've been saying, some some experience of life. I, I, for me, you know, there's a, a line, um, I think it was George Eliot who described fiction as the nearest thing to life. And, and, and that's the fiction that is powerful and moving for me. And, and the, the reality, I'm, I'm always struck, you know, the reality of, of life, um, which is so, uh, can be so intense and tortured and, and riven, even in the course of a day, you know, so much can go on. You know, and 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 most of the time, there's so much that goes on is not breaking the surface, right? Is the day what the day looks like? Is you know, you get up, you walk the dog, you speak to your mom on the phone, you take the kids to school, you know, you do some work, you go to the supermarket. Like that's superficially the day, right? But underneath, there's all of this. You know, I had an argument with my best friend last week, and it's unresolved. And I know that so and so is having an affair with such and such, and it's not working out. And and she needs my help. And, you know, I mean, there, there's all this, my, you know, my, has my mother's cancer going to come back? I mean, there's just all this other stuff that is huge and intense and dramatic, but, but it's, it's not on the surface. And so I feel that the fiction that is most powerful for me is the fiction that lives in, in, in everyday life, you know, that lives in the, in the texture of our, of, of our grounded lives, you know, and, and, and those can be grounded lives in any place in any time. It's not that it, I want it to be necessarily grounded in my boring life, but as a teacher, right, I teach Joyce's The Dead often. And I don't know if you read it recently, but it's something that is just literally, it's about, you know, couple goes to a holiday party at, at the guy's aunt's house. It's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's, I think 12th night. So it's, the new year, beginning of the new year, it's winter. And then they, the couple goes back to the hotel room and um, might have sex, but don't. And then they go to bed. That's the story, right? But the whole world is in that novella, everything. And and every little detail, it's like an advent calendar, right? It's if you actually pause and sort of open it up and look at the detail, each each detail is telling you something bigger than itself about 
the characters or about their dynamics or about their history or about the context in Ireland at the time and so on. And that to me is a, is a, an exemplar of, 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 of the enormousness of, of a fictional world that is grounded in something really very small. Yeah. I mean, it takes your breath away. It does. <laughs> you know, every time I reread that, it does. It takes it away. It takes my breath away. As you were writing about other authors, including Teju Cole, Italo Svevo, and Rachel Cusk, they all had some element, I think. Rachel, in particular, you, you were writing a lot about her form, um, that she has moved to the pseudo-biography novel. And, but you mentioned some of this style with, with Italo and Teju. And I'm wondering if you are seeing any sort of trend toward that style. And if so, do you think it has something to do with some of the other things that we're talking about in terms of technology and the influences of our lives and the sort of mixture of virtual reality and things like that? Well, I think it's interesting. I think, you. I mean, there's a much uh, bigger scale uh, uh, evolution that you can say from from the mid 19th century onwards, we're looking, if you will, at the death of, of God, right? We're looking at a, a, an increasing secularization. And with that secularization, there's a, a rise, um, there's, there's skepticism um, about, about general, generalized statements or, or, or godlike perspectives, right? So the 19th century novel is a novel that uh, is, is often in the third person. It often enters many people's points of view. It, it, it's like a 19th century landscape painting. It has a it has a sort of grand and distant perspective. And and what modernism is is a much more fractured, subjective um, you know approach to saying you know I can I can convey one person's or 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 a few people's, but I'm not making any claims to what life is like for people more generally. The problem that we're encountering. Uh, as 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 things go along is is that even that seems perhaps presumptuous and people say well the only story i can tell is my own right that's the only thing i, I there's there are issues of appropriation there are issues of 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 insufficient knowledge and so on and so on like what can what can i what can i um authentically tell well maybe it's only my life story and and i was like that's a fairly, when you get there, things are just fairly limited for a writer, <laughs> you know, especially if you have a dull life. So, so there's a, um, th- there are ways around it. And I think, you know, th- these are um, not Svevo so much because Svevo was writing um, a century ago and he's a modernist writer. So he comes, I think, under that, um, that sort of umbrella of people who were fracturing, uh, fracturing traditional narratives with, with subjectivity. And so he, his is an unreliable, tragicomic, narrator is a great character it's a great sort of digressive storyteller he's sort of playing with traditional arcs of narrative and so on but but both Teju and uh Rachel Cusk are manifestly um influenced and I think acknowledge the influence of of a of a German writer named W.G. Sebald who um wrote several novels in the 90s and and was killed in a car crash um really quite young in his 50s uh he lived in the UK and um, he was somebody who took as as his subject uh, being German. He lived as an expatriate in in the UK, but but he the Holocaust was his subject really. But he he he, he was somebody who had, um, I would say, a, a great ethical seriousness. Um, 
And he didn't feel that he, you know, he felt that as a German man, he was, you know, even in a generation born, um, he was born, I think, either right at the end of the war or during the war. He couldn't sort of suddenly inhabit in the first person the stories of that time that were not his. And so he, um, he in a way, created a form or, 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 um, or furthered a form, I mean, because it's a form that exists in, in Conrad, say, where, where there's, I don't know if you remember, but there's always a sort of framing narrator and then a narrator, you know, there's the framing narrator and then there's Marlowe. Uh, and, and Marlowe is telling the story that he's around a, a fire and he's telling it to the narrator who writes it down, right? And he's telling it to other people too, but he's the narrator writes it down. So, so, so it's not a form that didn't exist before. It did exist before, but, but, but Sebald, you know, really makes something of it, which is the, the narrator is a sort is a is a is a quiet observer who who um, does not willingly reveal themselves. Is somebody who is um, lurking in the shadows and recording the stories of other people, right? And that's and that's and and in Sebald, uh, and and I think to some extent in Cole and and Cusp, there's a sort of play going on um, to to try to suggest that perhaps the stories that are being recorded aren't just fiction they're actually real. And I think, you know, that's another issue of our times, this question of, do we need to believe that something really happened in order to care about it? Which didn't used to be the case. But are we now in a time when, when if, if we don't know that it, if, if we know, if we know that it isn't or wasn't real, do we care less? And, and maybe we are in that time. So, so that whole autofiction quality of, you know, it's, it's, it's right on the, um, it, it's right on that uncertain line between did it happen? Didn't it happen? Did some of it happen? You know, and that keeps that that keeps a reader interested. But but I think you know the, just to finish this rather long, long uh, digression. But but I think both Teju Cole and Rachel Cusk um, are are sort of uh, taking the lead of of Sebald and moving on in different directions. Uh, Cusk is writing about relationships. Um, Cole about people, but also cultural and racial histories, um, you know, but in this very considered way that doesn't in some in some way that the the narrator is um, as much as possible, not part of the story, which also makes a particular sort of narrator and a particular understanding of the narrative. It makes me think a little bit about a concept you touched on with your essay, Teenage Girls, and you were talking about your own daughter having had that all too common experience as a young girl where all of a sudden no one likes her or or castigates her from the group. And then you were talking about your own childhood in Australia and a friend named Jane who haunted you and she um, she kind of told you the way things were in a very confident way when you were young. And then as your paths diverged, you didn't really know her anymore. And it turned out much later that, that she had, had died. And you were, you were kind of talking about the gulf between people and never knowing how they experience life and, and never being able to really truly express how, how we experience life. And there's a little bit about playing with form that reminds me a little bit or makes me think about how even through form, maybe we're, we're adapting it to try to get a little closer to that communication. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but uh, yeah. yeah. Yes. 
Yes, absolutely. I think that's so true. And but I think what's interesting and to just sort of complicate it a bit is that it is also about acknowledging the difficulty. So I understand him to be saying that if I were to write without that layer of of, of narratorial distance, if I were to write the stories of of these World War II experiences in the first person or even in the third person without a narrator, you know, being the listener to someone else telling these stories, it would suggest um, it would suggest an ease in the telling that I don't feel, right? That my experience of these stories is they're complicated and difficult. And I have, you know, I have a distance from them and, and I'm implicated in them, but they aren't my stories. And, and so I have to acknowledge that in the way that in the form that I use in the way that I tell the stories. And I think you could say that the evolution of, of, of fiction in its most, I mean, not, every novel that is written, but in its most considered ways, the evolution of fiction over the past 150 years has been this ever, um, ever evolving attempt to, to tell stories more truthfully, right. To, to get closer to the reality of things. And, and, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's sort of obvious in painting, um, that, you know, you start with a, a sort of landscape of a village and a, you know, take it painted from afar with everything is sort of cohesive. And then you get to Picasso where it's like, no, that's not cohesive anymore. It's broken up into, the, um, and, and, and then, you know, where do you go from there? And, and you might go from there to, um, you know, paradoxically somebody, the, the work of Marlena Dumas, who's a painter who's, who I write about in the book, who, who paints from, who often paints celebrities and paints from photographs, you know, that's part of the process and something she talks about. And, and, and that's part of this acknowledgement of our mediated culture, like that, 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 that we, we are working often with received images. And then she, but she also works, she does it, she does it with ink wash. A lot of her work she does with ink wash, where she's sort of letting the, the, the ink flow freely on the paper by tilting, you know, tilting it in different directions. So she's not controlling it, right? There's all of this considered thought about what is the, what is the most um, truthful rendition of the, of my experience of life, right? How can I make an artwork that is, that is, that is most closely going to convey the complexity and the layers of the life that I experience around me and that I understand. And, and so um, I think that that playing with form is, is absolutely both about, I mean, it's the, the Beckett line. I can't go on. I must go on, fail again, fail better is another Beckett line, you know, that, 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 that you don't, you don't throw up your hands and say, well, you know, I have, I have, you know, I actually have 200 pages worth of stuff to communicate to you, but I'll just send you a, a text emoji instead, right? You don't throw up your hands and give up. Um, you, 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 you keep trying, uh, but, but, but along the way, you know, I think we're in a, in, in a time when acknowledging the difficulty is, is part of the truthfulness of, of that attempt. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I was telling you that I was rereading War and Peace. And so this is about when Prince Andre is, is you know, Prince Andre is this character who sort of dies a thousand deaths. <laughs> he's like the zombie in the, you know, in the horror film. You think he's dead and then he comes back. And, th and then there comes a time when he really does die. Um, and this is um, just, this is, um, it's not his death, but it's it's not long before. So he he has been injured in battle. 
um, and and um, has has been lingering, sort of not really getting better and yet not dead for some time. And Natasha, who, who to to whom he was, um, with whom he was in love, and 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 um, and who who in a dizzy way had her head turned by another young man and and, and really sort of broke Prince Andre's heart. Um, has come to him. So um, here's the passage. In a dream, he saw himself lying in the same room in which he lay in reality, but he was not wounded, but healthy. Many sorts of persons, insignificant, indifferent, appear before Prince Andre. He talks with them, argues about something unnecessary. They're preparing to go somewhere. Prince Andre vaguely recalls that it is all insignificant and that he has other more important concerns, but he goes on to their surprise, speaking some sort of empty, witty words. Gradually, imperceptibly, all these people begin to disappear and everything is replaced by the one question of the closed door. He gets up and goes to the door to slide the bolt and lock it. Everything depends on whether he does or does not manage to lock it. He walks, he hurries, his feet do not move, and he knows that he will not manage to lock the door, but still he painfully strains all his force, and a tormenting fear seizes him. And this fear is the fear of death. It is standing behind the door. But as he is crawling strengthlessly and awkwardly towards the door, this terrible something is already pushing against it from the other side, forcing it. Something inhuman, death, is forcing the door, and he has to hold it shut. He lays hold of the door, strains in a last effort. To lock it is already impossible, just to hold it shut. But his attempts are weak, clumsy, and pushed by the terrible thing. The door keeps opening and shutting again. Once more, it pushes from the other side. His last supernatural efforts are in vain, and the two halves open noiselessly. It comes in, and it is death, and Prince Andre died. But in the same instant that he died, Prince Andre remembered that he was asleep, and in the same instant that he died, he made an effort with himself and woke up. Yes, that was death. I died, I woke up. Yes, death is an awakening. Clarity suddenly came to his soul, and the curtain that until then had concealed the unknown was raised before his inner gaze. He felt the release of a force that previously had been as if bound in him, and that strange lightness which from then on did not leave him. When, having come to in a cold sweat, he stirred on his sofa, Natasha went over to him and asked what was the matter. He did not answer, and not understanding her, gave her a strange look. That was what had happened to him two days before Princess Maria's arrival. Since that day, the doctor said the wasting fever had taken a turn for the worse. But Natasha was not interested in what the doctor said. She saw those dreadful moral signs, which were more unquestionable for her. Since that day, there began for Prince Andre, along with his awakening from sleep, an awakening from life, and it seemed no slower to him in relation to the length of life than an awakening from sleep in relation to the length of a dream. Do you want to say anything more about that? You know, I, I had a, uh, when I was in graduate school, uh, Toby Wolf, who, who, who was my professor, um, said, I've always remembered it and have repeated it. He said, uh, you know, the thing about dreams and fiction, he said, you got to be careful. He said, so, so, so you want to think of it that you, not that you can't put a dream in fiction, but it's like, it's like a fairy tale. You have three dreams for all your writing life. So you just, <laughs> if you use up the three, you can't put any more. So, so you want to just think very carefully about whether you put a dream, you know, where and when you put a dream in your fiction. And, and I, I, I guess, you know, that's a merited dream. That's a dream 
that makes a lot of sense to me. And I feel like that's a dream that some version of which I feel I've, you know, never got so far, but that's a, a, a dream of version of which I've had. And for me, that's, um, it's just a moment of the great imaginative wisdom of Tolstoy, who of course, at the time of writing that was, was vigorous, healthy, and in the middle of his life and a long, long way from dying. You know? Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. I'm sorry. I guess there's a, 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 um, a lot of, there's a lot of death on my mind. So I thought I would read the beginning of my essay to women. Um, just the first half page. When my father was first dying, that's to say in the time we thought he would die, but he did not, the time when he made a belated and miraculous recovery and was returned to us like a character in a fairy tale for two years, three months, and five days, my aunt, his younger sister, tried to insist upon a visit from the priest. My mother, although diminished, as yet undiagnosed, she was already undermined by the Louis body dementia that would fell her, resisted valiantly because my father, at that time off with the fairies, as the expression has it, apt for the fairy tale like nature of the time, could not, and the priest was kept at bay. But two years later, when he was actually dying, fully and utterly presently himself, my father, my obdurate and fierce father, whose will we feared and admired in equal measure, could not resist his sister in her zeal, which is how he came in the nursing home, reluctantly to take communion from Father Bob the once-a-week visiting pastor in a baby blue, open-collared, short-sleeved summer shirt, who, with short, plump fingers, unwrapped the host from a rolled hanky in his breast pocket like a wee snack saved from lunch. Isn't there someone, my father asked me pleadingly, who could do this in French? Alas, I shook my head. I did not think so. All right. What would you like to share about that? As you know, Times like that are very, are very intense uh, in lived experience, and they're also so full of detail. There, there are several weeks, or maybe at this point, not a couple months, but but certainly several weeks of my life that I remember with a with a sort of seared clarity, as if they, you know, as if they were they were burned into me. My my father had two illnesses. Um, one in 2008, he almost died, and he was not compus mentis and uh, milled by mouth for 45 days, during which time we, you know, had to buy the grave plot and, and you know, decide on the DNR and all of this stuff. So, and then he made this miraculous recovery, and then two years later, he he died. He was ill again, and he died. And if if you said, oh, tell me about it, <laughs> we'd be here another three hours. Like, I could tell you, so just all the details of the the rooms and the smells and the people and the and the things they said and the things you know the interactions and the emotions and the you know the the illusions and the comparisons you know the time my parents were like a Beckett play the time you know um, and so on and so on and, and it's like when you're when you're trying to write something like this you're, the question is how do you distill it how do you how do you um, how do you reduce it down to something that is that is truthful and not unbearable. Um, and hopefully, you know, I, you know, hopefully a little bit almost amusing because of course, one of the extraordinary things about life is that the comical is everywhere. And, and that, that, that priest was comical, you know, <laughs> I, I can't, I feel like my father, somebody who stopped um, going to, to, to church when he married my mother, but he, 
or before, but he, but he but he was raised with a very traditional Catholicism and and um, you know and basically couldn't recognize the church after Vatican II. So so you know and he was French, so the church was French to him. So the idea that you know a guy kind of a guy hops out of his car and rolls up in a short sleeve button down shirt with the host tucked in a hanky in his pocket, you know, is 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 some is is like a, some strip mall version of religion that that is just so far from what my my father's distant memories of religion would have been. You know, it's funny. It, it, it's it, you know, my aunt, my French aunt, kind of clamoring, "You gotta do it! You gotta do it! You gotta have the last rites! You gotta do it!" It's it's sort of dramatic and also um, and to me very profound and also kind of hilarious and 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 so you you know to, you want to try and convey as much of that as you as you can and and that's hard where do you write um you know historically i've been somebody who just um anywhere it's it's about the pen and the paper and um and i and i write where i can as long as there are no people making no nobody i know is making demands like starbucks will do even if it's noisy because nobody wants anything from me but but actually we um we 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 put some heating in the in a desk in the garage and that's where I write now. And it's a great place. That's where I'm right now and I can look out the window. We have a window, I can look out the window at the garden and it's great. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? The trajectory of my life is always to try to get back to writing. I feel like all of my life takes me away from writing. I'm never trying to get away from writing. <laughs> I'm only trying to get back. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show it to my husband, who um, you know, who who is a reader and a writer, and a critic, um, known mostly to people as a critic, but he's also a novelist. And um, yeah, he's the first person I, I show it to, and I and I I trust him, and he knows me well, and um, he knows when I he, he he sort of just knows when it's the moment to say just keep going, or or when it's time to say what he really thinks. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, um, who's good at that, really? I feel like the, 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 on the, on the, the more you experience, the more you, uh, the, the, the longer life goes on, you know, you, you get some wisdom. And so one of the things I've come to realize, and I try to um, it, it, tell my students, um, because I think rejection is really hard and it feels so personal. But, but in fact, you know, that thing I was saying earlier, that when somebody's words don't fit in my head, Right. Do I think that 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 that's bad? No, I've just come to realize that some things fit in my head better than others in the way that some pairs of pants look better on you than other pairs of pants. Right. You wouldn't say those are disgusting pants because they don't look good on me. Right. You just say those aren't the pair. Those aren't the pants for me to see the world that way has helped me, um, you know, deal better with with rejection. If you if you feel that you've done the very best you can to say something that you really wanted to say, right? To tell a story that you wanted to, as you wanted to tell it. And you've done your very best and you're, and you're um, if not pleased with it, at least you feel you couldn't have done better. If people don't like it, that is as it is, it's tough, but, but you wouldn't do something differently. You know, part of teaching, right, is, is, is learning as in a workshop for, for students in their critiques to learn that, that it's not our job to tell people the story we, we wish they'd written. Our job is simply to mirror back the story that they have written, right? So that they can see if we got what they wanted us to. That's our job as critics in a workshop. 
And by the same token, I think, you know, you, you don't know what somebody, um, what somebody is getting when they read your work. Uh, you can't know for sure. Um, but if they don't like it, um, it could be for any of a number of reasons. It could be because they're not interested in what you, in the story that you're telling. It could be that the words don't fit in their head. It could be, and it could also be that it's bad, right? So it could also be that you didn't do a good job. Um, but there are a lot of other reasons besides you didn't do a good job. And I, and I think, you know, I, I, I try to um, convey that to to young writers so so that, um, not so that they don't listen to criticism, but 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 so that they understand that things aren't personal in the way they sometimes feel. And what is your favorite word? You, that, you know, that's such a tough question. I love that Jamie Quattro could just say palimpsest. Every time I looked at that at that question that you posed, I I kept thinking, you know, there's a um, there's there's a Beckett play, uh, Crap's Last Tape that I love, and and in in the middle of it, he starts repeating the word spool, 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 spool. And, and um, that's what I, that's what I kept thinking of. I, I wouldn't say that spool is my favorite word, but, but, um, and, and in fact, in a sort of annoying and perverse way, I would say to know that there, there were in Shakespeare's time, 24,000 words to play with and that there are now more. I, I, I'm not going to pick favorites. I feel that English language is my favorite thing. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time you spent. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Mitzi. It's a joy to speak to you. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Claire Massoud, author of Kant's Little Prussian Head and Other Reasons Why I Write. If you liked today's episode, check out my previous interview with Claire Massoud, where we discussed her novel, The Burning Girl. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Bill Clegg, Susan Minot, and Jonathan Lethem. I want to send a huge thank you out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.